0: Hi, I'm Willow Belden, and you're listening to Out There, the podcast that explores big questions through intimate stories outdoors. So here's a pop quiz. How many pounds of feed does a cow need to eat in order to produce one pound of beef? Any guesses? The answer is about eight pounds. In other words, it takes a lot of resources to produce beef. That's why a company called Exoprotein is taking a different approach. Instead of farming traditional livestock, they're farming... Yes, crickets. Turns out, crickets are a really efficient protein source. They have the nutritional benefits of meat with the environmental footprint of plants. Exoprotein is our sponsor for this episode. They make power bars and other snacks using Cricut Protein. Get 15% off your order at exoprotein.com with the promo code OUTTHERE. That's exoprotein.com, promo code OUTTHERE. A few months ago, I went to a reading at a used bookstore. One of the authors was a woman I had worked with back in my public radio days. At the time, she was pursuing an MFA in creative writing at the University of Wyoming. And on the side, she was reporting for our local NPR station, where I also worked. I knew her journalism work, but I had never seen any of her creative writing. And then I went to this reading. She read an essay from her new book, The Skinned Bird, And my goodness, it was exquisite. Beautiful and heartfelt and devastating all at once. I immediately bought the book and read it cover to cover. Today, you're going to hear one of my favorite essays from the book. It's about language and learning to communicate, and also about birdsong. After we play you the essay, we'll have a conversation with the author. Chelsea, beyond a lillo. So now, without further ado, here's Chelsea. The essay she's about to share is called Critical Learning
1: Period. Songbirds, or ossine passeriformes with fixed song repertoires, learn to sing in four steps. The steps are studied in part because many linguists believe that these same four steps describe human language acquisition. The first step, in song acquisition, is called the critical learning period. This is when chicks begin to recognize their parents' voices, along with neighbors of the same species, and they differentiate between those voices and other sounds. My parents were married for three years before I was born, and they lived together for almost three years after. The shape and sound of their love is unknown to me. I have no idea how he courted her or when the courting became something else. I don't remember the words they spoke to each other in the days and months while I lay in my crib listening. I know what my mother said to me and what I said back. These are stories I've heard often. Before I could talk, I had night terrors, she tells me. I would scream inconsolably in my sleep. The pediatrician said this was normal for some babies. I would stand in my crib and yell, so early, so advanced, Mom! 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 Mom, and then one day after a moment, Darlene? I wonder, now, if I sounded like my father when I said it. Silent Stage A chick in the silent stage of development might make alarm sounds or cry for food, but it doesn't sing. This period can last up to eight months. A number of ornithological research studies document that a range of memorization and comprehension activities are occurring during this stage. I would have been memorizing and comprehending while my parents' relationship collapsed. I have only two vivid memories from that time, and both are soundless. One is of watching Sesame Street while my mother did 70s-style calisthenics in front of the couch next to me. The other is of my father throwing clothes out of a dresser drawer. For years, this memory seemed to be of a comic gesture, something he might have done to make me laugh. My point of view was low-angled, as though I were standing in the doorway to their room, which is long in my mind's eye with dreamlike perspective, like a hallway at the far end of which was their bed. The memory itself is just a flash, no more than a six-second clip of motion, arms, clothes, arcing up and over. Years later, after my mother told me about the night we left, the nights leading up to our leaving, I realized that he wasn't performing for me. He was tearing their shared bedroom apart, looking for evidence, for proof. Over good wine and a perfectly grilled steak, My latest lover tells me all of the things his ex-girlfriend didn't like, wouldn't do, failed to appreciate. Each exasperation has a moral. It's a little lesson I'm to learn. He calls this sharing himself. And I hear myself repeat back to him, Yes. Please. Thank you. Before I was born, my mother sold light bulbs door to door while my father was at work. This made it difficult for him to monitor her, so he pressured her to go back to restaurant work. At the restaurant, he could drop in from time to time. He could check to make sure she wasn't flirting any more than was necessary to get her tips. When she told me about the light bulb job, I was in grade school and using her old sample case to cart around my art supplies. It had a socket housing at one end. She must have been able to screw a bulb into it for demonstration purposes. When she told me about having to go back to the restaurant, I was an adult. By then, I was familiar with what it felt like to be monitored by my lover. Recent work with zebra finches shows that certain neural gates open or close when young birds are learning songs from their male tutors. As fathers sing new pieces of song, learning neurons fire. But pieces of song that the chicks have already learned do not have the same effect. In fact, when they hear a song repeated... An inhibitory response is triggered in their brains. The researchers track these responses using implanted electrodes weighing less than a penny. One of the researchers says of their findings we see that the brain changes how it listens to the father once it's learned part of that song. She finds that sweet. I don't remember my first breakdown because I have cried a lot for as long as I can remember. I cry when I'm tired when I'm frustrated, hurt, sad, scared, whenever I'm overwhelmed. But at some point during my last year living at home and my third year in college, I tried to talk to my mother about it. I had been afraid to tell her that the crying worried me, that it sometimes seemed a thing out of my control, like a car still rolling forward though my foot was mashed into the brakes. My skin felt hot and my stomach churned when I imagined the words I would have to say, words like hysterical and maybe even crazy. I've been afraid of other conversations in my life, and it always feels like this. This time, I was most afraid that she would say just to try harder, and I couldn't imagine how to do that. Instead, she said, Maybe you were awake the night we left. I thought you were asleep, but maybe you were awake. When I'm alone in this house, and my lover is far away on one of his frequent business trips, I sit down on the area rug I bought, to protect his Peruvian mahogany floors from the sharp edges of my second-hand coffee table, and I attempt to call up the loudest sobs I can. No one can hear you, I tell myself. Now is the time to get it all out. I think about his small cruelties, all his reminders, admonishments, the long months of summer stretching before me but I almost never make a sound. Subsong During the next phase of their learning, baby birds practice the sounds of their songs without actually communicating information. The subsong has been likened to babbling and has also been called a period of vocal play. I learn in an ornithology textbook that individuality is important to birds too, They transform and improvise from the collection of themes and syllables that were memorized in stage one. He was drunk at the time, she said, and in the throes of one of his paranoid fantasies of infidelity. He raged. He had a gun, and later, a knife. He was threatening to hurt her, and himself. When he finally passed out, she bundled me up, and we left. I don't remember any of this. And I can't imagine it, because I can't picture my father doing any of these things. He's never had a drink of alcohol in my presence. She said so little against him when I was young, and she never denied his rare weekend visitation requests. Though I can't imagine it, I know it's true. Something in my quickening pulse must remember it, even if I can't call the memory up. My mother tells me my father had no patience for fussing. If we were at someone's house and I began crying or whining, like a baby, she explains, like I was supposed to, she means, we'd have to leave. I tell her, perplexed but not with any disbelief, that I've seen very little of this side of his anger. I guess I inspired it in him, she says, in my voice. Yes, please, thank you. I assure her that I've heard similar sentiments from his ex-wives and their children. If you did, it wasn't personal, I say. My mother taught me to succeed. I stayed up all night to finish projects on time. I worked two jobs to save enough money for my first year of college. After my own marriage ended, I took every promotion I could get until I had a down payment for a house. If you do what needs to be done, things will always work out. This is my mother's song. But in looking up the gruesome details of songbird experiments, I find this. Songs are learned from conversations just as much as from tutors. I know so little about the conversations that I heard first. I worry often about the things I learned to say in my father's voice, about my own predilection toward any voice that sounds like his. But, too, about the sound my voice still makes, crying out in defiance of his demands, even though I have disavowed his demands, for decades. Song Crystallization The final step is to turn the babbled song into an adult song. It can happen within weeks of the young bird's first attempts, or it can take months, depending on the species. The bird picks a few sounds from his practice and then organizes them into phrases and perfects their timing such that he can communicate with others of the same species. When I try to ask my mother about our time in my father's house, she chooses words carefully. It's extremely difficult to live under the scrutiny of a jealous person, she says. I explain the critical learning period, about wanting to know more about the first words I heard. I do not say that I'm waiting for someone to come home, and that when he does... I will talk to him in a voice I don't recognize. I'm afraid she might tell me to stop trying, to get as far away as I can. And I will, soon. But today, I can't quite imagine how to do that. You would have heard some very ugly things. Some very ugly things. I can hear her mind stumbling and skipping, with regret, perhaps, or possibly sudden insight. My skin gets warm, and I don't want to hang up the phone with this widening space between us. Sometimes, knowledge is a burden you can carry for someone else. I want to take this knowing from her and pack it back up. I tell her that even scientific analogies have their limits. I tell her starlings and mockingbirds continue to learn songs throughout adulthood. I tell her about the zebra finches, how they learn to ignore the sounds of their father's voices. And that's reassuring, she says. I pace in front of the large picture windows with a dust mop in my hand and the phone in the crook of my shoulder. The windows let in so much sunlight, I imagined it would be good light to work by here, the way it glows on his fine wood floors like a magazine ad for floor wax. But it only does that when the wood is spotless, I've learned. And keeping it spotless takes a lot of work. Outside, a juniper titmouse, then a junco, then a rock dove, stop by the porch in search of food. One by one, they find none. Plus, we aren't birds, I say. That's true, she says. We aren't. I shake the dust mop over the trash and move to the broom. We start talking about birthdays. Mine is coming up, and there are so many after that in August. August. Among them, my father's, which neither of us mentions. Among them, my lover's. I've been knitting him a pair of socks. He'll only put them on once, when I ask to see if they fit. And I'll take them with me, when I leave.
0: Chelsea Biondelillo. She's a writer living in Estacada, Oregon. We'll talk with Chelsea about her book in just a moment. But first, I'd like to ask you to consider supporting Out There with a financial contribution. And here's why. We are an independent podcast which means we're not governed by any outside media company or network. On the one hand, I love that. It means we're free to tell the stories we want to tell and to use our own artistic judgment to craft those stories. It means we're not beholden to big corporations. But it also means we don't get funding from big corporations. It's one of my greatest wishes to be able to pay my staff a living wage. Journalists and artists and all the people who work behind the scenes deserve to be compensated fairly. But unfortunately, I don't have the money to compensate my team or myself fairly. That's why I'm coming to you with an impassioned plea for support. When you become a patron of Out There, you're participating in something beautiful. You're helping ensure that artists are paid for their work, you're helping bring meaningful stories to life. You're committing an act of generosity that will help us grow and thrive now and in the future. To become a patron today, just head over to our Patreon page. Patreon is a crowdfunding platform for creative endeavors. It lets you make modest contributions on a monthly basis. You can find us at patreon.com slash outtherepodcast. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash out there podcast. And now on to our conversation with Chelsea Beyond So I wanted to start by talking a little bit about the essay that we just heard. Um, And because I find this essay both fascinating and also kind of Devastating, you know. This idea that the way we communicate may may be in part shaped by things that we've heard when we're too young to remember. Um, and I'm curious what uh, what you do with that understanding. Um, you know, has has learning about songbirds and thinking about how they relate to your own childhood has that changed the way you think about how you communicate now
1: well uh, you said what what do we do with that information and my first thought was besides despair you mean <laughs> and, um, <laughs> yes besides I despair that, I, I think that in in part it it gives me a little bit more compassion for myself and for others right um, if you think about the way that you're responding or that someone is responding to you As the result of an incredibly long process, um, rather than something fiery in the moment, uh, I think it it helps potentially. Um, And I certainly have had not a great history with relationships and understanding better where some of the foundations for that process come from certainly helps me, again, to 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 have a little better, more compassion for myself and, and potentially others.
0: Mm, I love that. So how did you get so interested in birds in the first place?
1: Uh, I, that's a great question. And people, it's one I've been asked a lot, and I generally don't have a really great answer for it. But the answer I do have is that, My grandmother was an amateur birder, and when I was young, I often went on birding outings with her. Uh, I found them generally pretty boring and (laughs) and interesting, and I, I think that my lack of engagement was somewhat of a disappointment to her. And it wasn't until much later when I decided to spend more of my time writing that I came back to birds as a way of connecting better to my, to the landscape in which I found myself.
0: So I want to pause here and say that when I first met Chelsea, she was really, really into birds. We were working together at Wyoming Public Radio, and it seemed like every day she had some crazy new bird fact to tell us. And not just about songbirds. I remember her being particularly fascinated with vultures and other scavengers, So much so that she wanted to write a book about vultures.
1: Scavengers in general, but vultures specifically, when they eat a dead animal, they actually clean the pathogens. So vultures can digest anthrax. They can digest brucellosis, which is um, fatal to cattle. Um, So if a vulture scavenges a a cow that has died of brucellosis, for example, um, they destroy that pathogen so that later when they secrete the remains, they're clean. Wow. Whereas if the cow just degrades or if, say, a coyote scavenges, then they're going to secrete the pathogen whole. So it stays in the environment. And so vultures really, they perform, they not only clean in a way we can see, but they clean in a way we can't see.
0: So tell me about the title of the book, The Skinned Bird.
1: It comes from an essay uh, called How to Skin a Bird. Um, the essay is about exactly that, how, how, to, how to skin a bird. And it comes from my uh, experience at the University of Wyoming vertebrate collection, where I was trained to um, prepare bird specimens for the collection. Uh, so I, I learned how to skin songbirds and stitch them up for later study. Based on a comment from an early reader um, of one of my bird essays, and this was a visiting writer that came to the University of Wyoming, read, my, read an essay of mine uh, on hummingbirds and my layoff in 2008. And this visiting writer said, okay, I get it. You're the hummingbird here. Um, let's talk about how And I don't know what he said next because I was so mortified and embarrassed um, that I was, it it felt very simple. And I thought, I'm not the hummingbird. Like, come on, man, this is like way more complex of an essay than that. I'm not the hummingbird. And I sort of stormed around for a week or two, um, outraged at the suggestion. And then I came to the realization of, oh, my God, I'm the hummingbird. It's totally me, it is me, you know, he was absolutely right. And as I was looking at my collection in full, I was like, okay, I mean I, I am the skinned bird here. Um, it is it is my own self. It is the, you know, the the eye that is being examined here. Um, and I have recorded these ideas and thoughts for future study the same way. Um, a museum collection would do with the birds themselves. What made you,
0: I'm curious because I remember,, um, you know when we when when we were both uh, working together at Wyoming Public Radio and you 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 were working in the collections and learning how to skin birds and stuff birds and all that what what made you want to do that?
1: I mean I, I well,
0: Because most of us sort of have a a natural aversion to touching dead things.
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny because they, it was in my ornithology, I was taking ornithology, because I'd already been writing about birds and interested in birds. And I thought, well, I should really know more what I'm talking about. So I took an ornithology uh, class. And it was there that they, they said, if anyone wants to learn how to do this, to help us do this, um, you can come down to this office, you know, at noon tomorrow or whatever. And I mean, like, I was there at 11.59 and, (laughs) you know, like, are there still spots? And the collection manager was like, you're the uh, only one here. Yep. Still spots. (laughs) Come on in. And, you know, I mean, I guess my disposition, um, is, is to, to be interested in, in sort of darker things, in things that maybe other people wouldn't investigate. Um, and I'm sure there's, you know, sort of psychoanalytical reason why that is. Um, but really from a craft perspective, these are often topics that just aren't covered as often. And so there's some space to maybe think some new things or, um, make some new connections. There's just there's not a whole lot of books out there that are memoirs combined with um, bird dissections. So I made a little niche for myself.
0: One of the essays in the book, you can't actually read because you've covered it up with pictures. So you have the text, and then you have these pictures superimposed over the text. So you can read a couple of words here and there at the margins, but you really can't read the essay. What What's going on there?
1: Does it feel like an essay to you still? I mean, when you approach that as a reader? Or does it feel like something else?
0: I don't know. That's a good question.
1: I mean, that's kind of the question that, um, that I want uh, to inspire. Um, but I also like the idea of presenting something to a reader in a book that is otherwise pretty personal. I, I engage very openly and sometimes kind of brutally honestly um, with parts of my life that haven't, that aren't all sunny and, you know, live, laugh, love. And then there's this essay that, that, it, that you can't read. And so I kind of wanted to make it, make a statement that you don't have to lay everything bare, to be honest um mm. the the photographs that cover that essay are seashells and the perfect purpose of a shell in nature is to protect and offer um a kind of armor to the creature that lives in it and so i'm I'm saying that you know this. This isn't everything. No memoir can be everything. It can't be the full story. It can't be all of the stories. Uh, and so this is this is part of the story that that I don't tell. Uh, a way of a way of signaling to readers there is still part of the story untold.
0: What do you hope readers will take away from the book?
1: I think that. Um, why we do the things we do, and how we treat the people we love, and how we go forth into the world to make homes for ourselves and for our families. Um, none of these actions are discreet, and they are informed by so much of our, of our own history and our collective history, right? Songbirds don't just learn from their parents. They hear the voices of of all the other, um, birds around them as well. And so do we. And so I, I don't, I don't want to be too cheesy about it. Um, but I, but I think that if we think about the things that we're saying and the ways in which we're treating people and the ways in which we're making our space and place and way in the world as being actions that reverberate and echo out, um, that maybe, you know, we might be a little kinder to ourselves and to others. And I also really like the, I personally like how the natural world can inform my own understanding of myself. And I like the idea that somebody reading these essays might think, wow, I never thought that, you know, how a, how a bird learns its song or, or why it migrates or, you know, could have anything to do with me. And, and here, this book gives some examples for how that might be true. Well, Chelsea, thank you so much for
0: uh, sharing, sharing your essay and for talking about the book
1: today. Thank you so much for having me, Willow. I really appreciate it. And um, I'm looking forward to, to hearing how it comes out.
0: Again, that was Chelsea beyond a In addition to doing her own writing, she also teaches science writing online for Creative Nonfiction Magazine. If you want to see photos of Chelsea's adventures with birds, check us out on Instagram. We're at Out There Podcast. If you want to meet Chelsea in person, she has two live events coming up. She'll be at Elgin Community College outside of Chicago on February 27th. And she'll be at the Orcas Island Lit Fest in Washington State, April 17th to 19th. You can find out more at her website, roamingcowgirl.com. Before you go, I have an exciting announcement. We are hiring. One of our top priorities for 2020 here at Out There is to grow our listenership. And we're looking for someone to join our team on a freelance basis to oversee audience growth. If you have experience in marketing or another relevant field and you're keen on becoming part of a fun, creative team, we'd love for you to apply. Applications are due January 31st. Just head over to our website, outtherepodcast.com, and click on the blog tab for all the details. That's it for this episode. Our strategic advisor is Alex King. our advertising manager is Jessica Taylor, Laura Johnston heads up our ambassador program, Ben Montoya is our production intern, and our theme music was written by Jared Arnold. Also, special thanks to Marvin Forte for production assistance on this episode. We'll see you in two weeks, and in the meantime, have a beautiful day, be bold, go outside, and find your dreams.